today we're going to start uh, looking at the beginning of uh, the beginning of the end of the book um, of Revelation that we've been going through. Last time we we uh, we saw the seven bowls, uh, the seven bowls of judgment that were poured out by the by the seven angels, and and then after the last bowl was poured out, the the statement was made in Revelation sixteen uh, that it is done. The wrath of God has been poured out in full. Now, if if uh, if you miss the significance of those judgments on the land of Israel, particularly um, pertaining to uh, apostate Jerusalem, you know, who rejected the Messiah, uh, I, I suggest going back and listening to all those previous chapters. Uh, uh, we've been working through the book uh, of Revelation and looking at all the texts from the Old Testament, which John has uh, has been quoting. And and of course, we're going to continue to do that today. And uh, we're going to uh, we're going to be continually using the model that we've been used using before. And that is uh, when John quotes a text or alludes or references a text from the Old Testament, we're going to go back and look at that uh, that allusion, that reference. And then we're going to draw uh, the meaning that John's original readers would have drawn who were well versed in the Old Testament, who had the Septuagint read to them, which is the, the Greek Old Testament read to them uh, every Lord's Day. And so that's what we've been doing. That's what we're going to continue to do. And verse, uh, I mean, chapter 17 is going to begin uh, sort of the culmination of the end. Uh, we've seen the destruction of Jerusalem and, and all that in the, in the bold judgments. But uh, chapter 17 is going to be uh, it's going to be a. Uh, a chapter of explanation. It's going to explain who uh, this harlot who has received this judgment is and who this uh, beast is. We've looked at uh, the elements of the beast in chapter 17 before, uh, just as reference when the beast was mentioned. But now we're going to go through it verse by verse. Uh, I probably should warn you, as we look at chapter 17, we're going to be bouncing all around the Bible and and quoting many scriptures because John alludes to quite a few in this section. Um, and remember, it's it's pretty much impossible to understand the symbolism of Revelation unless, unless you dig into the references and allusions that John makes from from the Old Testament. And I've said it many times. This is where a lot of people go wrong. Uh, they don't, uh, you know, they they import meanings into the symbols that uh, don't comport with uh, uh, the symbols uh, meaning in the Old Testament themselves. And so today we're going to continue just like we've we've done all the way along. And if you haven't been with us, you'd know that I'm going to. You know, there are many different uh, models, many different models of interpretation of Revelation. Uh, I told you those at the very beginning, and uh, I'm not one who breaks fellowship over people who disagree. So it's Revelation and the end times and all that kind of stuff is not worth disagreeing and all that stuff. Uh, it's not worth breaking fellowship over. We can disagree about it. Um, but uh, I'm going to uh, give you the evidence as to why I believe what I believe and why. I'm not going to just say this means that without telling you why. Give you some evidence. And then you just decide for yourself. That's what we've been doing. So that being said, there are a lot of things we're going to have to look at in this chapter. And so I'm going to go ahead and apologize at the very front end if it gets a little long. But um, 
be sure to download the outline at jasonvelada.com because all the verses and the quotes and the things I'm going to be given are written there. That way you won't have to be scrambling around trying to write them down. So in chapter 16, we saw the culmination of judgment, the seven bowls. Uh, uh, finally, the full weight of judgment has been poured out and it's complete. Uh, it, it says it's done. You would think that uh, that would be the end of the book, but but we have so much more to cover. Chapter 17, as I said before, is kind of an explanatory chapter. One of the angels that poured out one of the seven bowls comes to John in chapter 17 and he's going to explain what John has just seen. And uh, what we're going to see here is an explanation of the judgment that's been poured out, and, and it's going to be embodied in a picture of this harlot, this prostitute, this this whore that is riding on the beast. And this is the beast that we've seen before with the seven heads and the ten horns and all that. Uh, in the in the very first verse, the angel comes to John and he offers to explain to him the judgment of the harlot. Now, uh, what judgment could it be? Uh, of course, if you're reading, remember, chapter divisions weren't part of the original text. If you're reading uh, the book of Revelation, you know that the judgment that he is going to be explaining to John is the judgment that we have just seen, the judgment of the seven bowls poured out. So it's what we just saw in uh, in chapter 16. So what the, the, the harlot riding the beast, uh, in it's going to explain at the end that the, the beast is going to turn on the harlot. This judgment that he shows of the harlot, it's an exp- explanation of the bold judgments. It's an explanation of what we have just seen. And so uh, you can't separate the two as if they're two different events or, or something like that. This is, this is a vision that is going to, uh, uh, explain uh, what judgment that has just been poured out. And so let's just read verse 1 and 2, and I'll show you what I mean as we go. Maybe that'll be more clear as we go through. It says, Then one of the seven angels, in verse 1, chapter 17, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute, the great harlot, who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with uh, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Remember, uh, we are translating the word earth land. That is, uh, that's what I believe contextually the the right translation. And we've we've made a a case for that throughout the. Uh, throughout the uh, the book of revelation so notice here that the the angel is uh it's one of the angels that had the seven bowls it says uh it says one of the one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls one of these angels that pour this judgment out um it uh, it comes to john the judgment he is about to explain is what we just saw it is the pouring out of of that uh of those bold judgments it's the judgments that we saw in chapter 16 but notice how he describes notice how he describes the one whom is this judgment is poured out now remember in, in the last uh in the last chapter, we talked about uh, the the plagues of Egypt and the judgment being poured out and boils on the people and and hail and 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 the rivers turning to blood and you know we talked about all these kind of things and we saw the imagery and the and the the use of um, the use of uh, the Exodus plagues and all that kind of stuff. We saw all that stuff, but notice how he describes it. He describes here the judgment that was poured out. It was poured out upon a harlot. 
And that harlot sits on this beast. He calls her a great prostitute uh, seated on many waters. And this verse is simply an introduction of the harlot. Her identity is going to be fleshed out as we go through the chapter. So we're going to get a more as we read some more into chapter 17. We're going to get more and more evidence as to who this harlot is as we move through. But initially, I'll go and let the cat out of the bag. But, you know, to be honest, you. You should probably already know by now. Uh, there are usually only two candidates for the identity of this harlot. Uh, most every commentator with it will either say that she is Jerusalem or she is Rome. She's called the city, the great city at the very end of this chapter. And so even even futurists who, who think all this happens at the end of history tend to think it is, you know, uh, it's Rome, but it's a revived Roman Empire or it's the re- the revived city of Jerusalem with an with a end time temple in it and and those kind of things. But based on everything that we've seen before and what we're about to see in this chapter, I don't think it can be any other city than Jerusalem. Uh, remember that that um, that is what the judgment of the seven bowls and trumpets was poured out upon. Now, let me give you some initial evidence, and then later in this chapter, we're gonna we're gonna see more. Um, the metaphor of a harlot, a prostitute, an adulteress, um, however you want to translate it, is. Is it's almost exclusively used in the Old Testament to describe apostate Israel, who have broken covenant with God and 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 committed idolatry, uh, and that idolatry is all is almost always um, spoken of as adultery or or uh, harlotry or sexual immorality. Uh, now, in the interest of fairness, I will say that there are two exceptions to what I just said. In Isaiah 23, uh, the city of Tyre is called a harlot. And in Nahum chapter 3, the city of Nineveh is called a harlot. But besides those two exceptions, every other reference to a harlot, to harlotry in the Old Testament, is aimed at apostate Israel. There are bunches and bunches of them. The whole book of Hosea is basically comparing Israel to a harlot, that uh, Gomer who marries Hosea. And, you know, there are a lot of references. The, when you look at harlotry and who is called a harlot and accused of harlotry and prostitution and sexual immorality in the Old Testament, you are, are overwhelmed by the references to uh, uh, apostate Israel who is broken covenant with God. Uh, the word uh, zana in the Old Testament, it, that's the word that means to fornicate or to be a prostitute. It's, it's overwhelmingly used of, of covenant breaking by, by Israel. Uh, we're going to wait on interpreting what the many waters, it says in the, in the first verse, the, the, the harlot who sits on many waters. Uh, we're going to wait on interpreting that because the text itself is going to interpret that for us. We don't have to go into great speculation. It's going to tell us later in this chapter exactly what that means. But this woman is also going to be called Babylon. Uh, in a moment, she's going to have a, a thing on her forehead that says Babylon, the mother of harlots. And, and this harkens back to the prophecy of Jeremiah that, that when Jeremiah gave about the destruction of Babylon, whom he described as sitting on many waters. In Jeremiah 51, 
uh, verse 13 and 14 says, Oh, you who dwell by many waters, rich in treasures, your end is come. The thread of your life is cut. The Lord of hosts has sworn by himself. Surely I will fill you with men as many as locusts. Bring a bell and they shall raise the shout of victory over you. He's talking about the fall of Babylon there in Jeremiah. But that is being applied here to this city, this harlot. And we'll, uh, we'll show that it's Jerusalem before we get through the end of this chapter. Um, there's other evidence that the harlot's Jerusalem because of the way she's dressed. But we're going to get to that in just a moment. But right here, I want you to uh, right here. I want you to see what Kenneth Gentry calls a literary parallel. Uh, this is a parallel relationship in the text between the harlot that we see here in chapter 17 and the new Jerusalem that we will see coming down from heaven at the end of the book. Uh, so from just a literary perspective, it seems like jo- what John is is presenting. He's presenting the harlot here as opposite to the bride of Christ. Uh, let me show you what I mean. We just read Revelation 17, uh, 1 and uh, 2. Uh, we didn't read seventeen three, but there it says uh, we will. It says he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and that's where I saw this woman riding on the beast. Uh, in Revelation seventeen one, which we just read, it says this is the text. Come, this is what the angel says. Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute, the great harlot. In Revelation twenty one nine, we haven't got there yet, but it's talking about the New Jerusalem. It says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. It's the almost exact parallel language, but it's showing on one hand in chapter seventeen the, the judgment of the great harlot. On the other hand, it's showing the bride, the wife of the Lamb, the spotless bride. And then in Revelation seventeen three, we're gonna see that in a moment, he says, and he carried John says the angel carried me away into the spirit in the spirit to the wilderness where he saw this harlot and in revelation 21 10 where we see the new jerusalem he says and he carried me away into the spirit to a great high mountain and so uh in revelation 17 you have the harlot revelation 21 you have the bride it almost looks like by the language that's used by the language that's uh the the same he carried me away in the spirit uh the same come i will show you the same things that are being said it's almost as if it's a parallel. It's almost as if he is uh, showing two opposite ends of the spectrum. On the one hand, he is uh, he's showing the uh, the harlot, the uh, adulteress, the covenant breaking woman who has uh, rain have had judgment rain down upon her. And on the other hand, he's showing the pure and the perfect bride of Christ. And so this uh, parallel, this parallel, this uh, um, opposing of one another, this showing on one hand the harlot. Harlot on one hand, the bride. It it almost presupposes that uh, the harlot here is the old covenant uh, people who have broken covenant and committed sexual immorality with other gods and all these kind of things. Uh, and so we'll see that as we. I haven't proven my case. I've really just stated it. So don't think I'm I'm making a conclusion here. I'm just telling you where we're going. Uh, as the chapter progresses, we're going to see the evidence as to why this harlot is Jerusalem. But I just wanted to give it all to you right at the beginning, so you know kind of where we're headed. Um, so let me let me start working through chapter 17, and I'll show you why uh, the this chapter in this context uh, set is. Is telling us that Jerusalem is this harlot who is is riding on the on the beast. Um, it says, uh, uh, 
let's see, in verse 3, sorry. And he says, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and uh, and ten horns. And so we've seen that beast before, haven't we? The seven heads and ten, ten horns. Uh, and that's going to be explained to us as well in chapter 17. So John is carried in the spirit to the wilderness where he sees a woman. Right. Do you remember the last time we saw a woman in the wilderness in Revelation? Uh, Remember chapter 12, the woman he saw gave birth to the Messiah. Then she fled into the wilderness as the dragon persecuted the rest of her children. Back in chapter 12, we saw that the woman was national Israel from whom the Messiah came. And in chapter 12, she was described as, remember, having 12 stars and the sun and the moon, uh, which we saw was a reference to Joseph's dream about his brothers and his father, Jacob, and mother, Rebecca. Uh, All that is in chapter 12. Uh, The last time we saw her, she was in the wilderness. And so John says the angel takes him in the spirit to the wilderness, and it, it, it seems like he is taken back to the wilderness, and he sees what could be the same woman, except now he sees something completely unexpected. He sees the woman riding on the beast, on the thing with seven heads and ten horns, the thing that we've seen over and over and over again in Revelation, he sees the woman riding on it. Uh, this is the same beast we've seen before, uh, and all this imagery is going to is going to be explained to us in this chapter. But of course, y- you gotta already know that the beast that we've seen before is Rome, and we're going to we're going to prove that in this chapter, and we've already proven it before, but we're going to prove it again. But so when we left the woman in the wilderness. She was fleeing to be protected from the dragon. But as we come back to the wilderness, after the after the, the child has ascended, the Messiah has ascended and all this has gone on, we see she has aligned herself. She's aligned herself with the beast so much so that she's actually riding it. She has become comfortable with the beast and is using the beast to get what she wants. This is why the angel can say that uh, she has caused the people of the land to take part in her fornications. Jerusalem no longer serves God. She now serves her own interests and her own and her, her interests necessitate that she join with the beast to keep her, to keep her prestige and, and her power. And this is not something that's, that's just seen in the book of Revelation. You can see this joining of forces between apostate Jerusalem and Rome throughout the pages of the New Testament. When when uh, when the Jewish leaders saw Jesus as threatening their power uh, by causing you know the nation to praise him, crying Hosanna as he was entering into the city in John eleven forty eight, they said, "If we let him go on like this." Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So their aim was not following the Messiah or even accepting that this might be the Messiah. They're, they were simply they simply wanted to keep their power and their prestige, and the best way to do that was to align with Rome so they could keep their their position. Uh, and, and, of course, another example would be when uh, you remember Jesus' trial, when Pilate asked, you know, the Jews, shall I crucify your king? What was their answer? The Jewish leadership, what was their answer from the crowd? The, it, the words that they said will ring throughout eternity. We have no king but Caesar. That's what they said. And so, so John sees this vision of the harlot riding the beast, and then he describes for us, uh, he's going to describe in the next few verses, the appearance of the harlot, and that's going to tell us a lot. But remember what we're seeing here. 
John is taken by one of these angels that uh, has poured out the the bowl judgments. He's taken and he's going to, the angel said, I'm going to show you the judgment of the harlot. And so basically, if you're looking for a, a, uh, a chronology of what's going on, if you're wondering where this fits in with the destruction of Jerusalem, the angel has uh, basically, for lack of a better way to put it, he has backed up and sh- is showing the whole picture. He's showing why this harlot has this judgment rained down upon her at the end of this chapter it's going to say and the beast turns on the harlot and he'll destroy her and kill her and and all those kind of things but right now he's showing the reason for the judgment he's showing the reason why uh this harlot is being judged and the reason why as we see in the pages of the new testament is that she rejected the messiah uh she uh rejected her bridegroom when he came and uh and uh, brought salvation when he came to bring the fulfillment of the covenant promises uh, this harlot rejected him and chose to fornicate with uh, with uh, this beast. They chose to align themselves with Rome. So let's look at the descriptions of the way that the harlot is dressed. Let's look at the descriptions of the harlot, and we could get a really good sense if we know our Old Testament about who she is by the way that she is described. In verse 4 of Revelation 17, it says, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet. And adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Now, there have been lots of interpretations about the dress of the harlot, about what she looks like. The usual lines are that, you know, the purple represents royalty and the scarlet is evil or the color of blood and so on and so forth. And, you know, I I guess you can make uh, some sort of case for all that. And and we've seen uh, things like that in Revelation before, uh, but... To be honest, that all seems really subjective to me. I mean, if it's royalty, it can pretty much be anything. You can make that fit in any context and anywhere. Uh, And, you know, it's probably true, but I want to get to the meat of what it actually means. I mean, if you start interpreting like that, it can pretty much mean whatever whatever you want it to mean. But if you've been following our study of Revelation, you know exactly where we are going uh, to find the definitive answer uh, as to what John's seeing. It's the Old Testament. Is there any place where these same colored garments are used, where these same colors are placed together? And the answer to that question is a resounding yes. And anyone familiar with the commands of God in Exodus, we've been looking at Exodus imagery throughout these chapters, would see them immediately. The same language used of the harlot's appearance of her dress is also what God commanded the Israelites to adorn the Aaronic high priest in. The high priest's clothes match the clothes, of, I should say the harlot's clothes, match the clothes of the high priest in the Old Testament Exodus days, the tabernacle days. In Exodus 28, verses 4 through 5, it says, These are the garments which they shall make. And he's talking about to, for Aaron. The high priest, a breastplate and an ephod of and a robe and a tunic of checkered work, a turban and a sash, and they shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother and his sons, that he may minister as a priest to me. They shall take the gold and the blue and the purple and the scarlet material of the fine linen. They shall also make an ephod of gold, of blue, of purple 
and scarlet material and fine twisted them the work of skillful workmen. So there you see the exact same color scheme. You see the exact same, uh, the exact same pattern of what this high, this, uh, harlot is wearing in the garments of the high priest. And, and the same thing in Exodus 39 verses 1 through 3. Moreover, from the blue and purple and scarlet material, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place as well as holy garments, which were for Aaron. Did you see that? They made these for ministering in the holy place. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, he made an ephod of gold, of blue, purple, scarlet material, fine twisted linen. Then they hammered out gold sheets and cut them into threads to be woven in with the blue, the purple, the scarlet material, and fine linen, the work of skillful workmen. This is uh, this is true even down. This comparison is true even down to the jewels that adorned the harlot, which coincided with the jewels that were faceted on the high priest's ephod. If you remember in in uh, Revelation chapter uh, chapter seventeen verse four that we read just a moment ago, she was ho- she was uh, adorned with gold. It says and jewels. And pearls. And so in Exodus 39, the same passage, verses 10 through 13, he's still talking about the high priest's garment. He says, And they mounted four rows of stones on it. The first row was a row of ruby, topaz, emerald. Second row, turquoise, sapphire, diamond. The third row, uh, jacinth, agate, and amethyst. Fourth row, a beryl, onyx, and jasper. They were set in gold filigree set when they were mounted. He's talking about the jewels that were on the uh on the uh, uh um the breastplate the the robes of the high priest as he went into uh, the holy place and these jewels represented the 12 tribes of of Israel and so this same purple scarlet uh, dress with gold and jewels uh, adorning it. Uh, this this same outfit, so to speak, that the harlot is wearing would immediately call to mind the high priest in the Old Testament. The priest's garments that were specifically designed for them to wear as they went into the holy place to intercede for, for the people. And there's also a very interesting correlation with the veil of the temple that separated the holy place uh, from the rest of the complex. Josephus describes Describes the the temple veil, you know, the temple veil that was rent that separates the holy place from the the rest of the temple or, or the tabernacle, uh, it, the temple in Josephus' day. Uh, Josephus in in Wars five five four it says, but before these doors, he's talking about in the temple, there was a veil of equal largeness with the doors. It was a Babylonian curtain embroidered with blue, fine linen, scarlet, and purple. And of a a contexture that was truly wonderful, nor was the mixture of colors without its mystical interpretation, but was a kind of image of the universe. For by the scarlet there seemed to be enigmatically signaled fire. And He goes on to explain it, but did you see the colors and the fabrics of the temple veil itself? And we could go back to the tabernacle and see the same thing. Uh, You see purple and scarlet and you see these things in the temple veil as well but the 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 main reference for this is the the garment the same garment that this harlot wears is the garment that we have seen in the high priest many times before as he goes into minister uh specifically and especially on the day of of atonement the reference to the temple veil it may or may not be significant to the identity of the harlot but it sure was curious to me that 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 all all the priestly and temple imagery we see invokes these colors and the jewels that correspond with them. From these descriptions, 
I mean, I don't think there can be any doubt that the woman John sees here is the same woman we saw in the wilderness in chapter 12. It is the religious system of the Jews. It is the, it's Jerusalem personified in, in the Old Testament imagery. The woman's going to be called a city at the end of this chapter. And, and not only this, but the prophet Ezekiel describes Israel as a woman who has been found by God and adorned with manner, all manner of gold and linen and jewels. And what does Ezekiel say? Ezekiel says, God did all this for you and you played the harlot. So God turned her over to judgment. See if this, I'm going to read this passage from Ezekiel 16 verses 10 through 17. See if this sounds familiar to what we're seeing here in Revelation. In Ezekiel 16 verse 10, this is God speaking through Ezekiel. He says, he's talking to Jerusalem. He says, I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hand and a necklace around your neck. I put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your dress was fine linen, silk and embroidered cloth. You ate flour, honey and oil. Uh, so you were exceedingly beautiful advanced and advanced to royalty. Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor, which I bestowed upon you, declares the Lord. God, but you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame, and you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. You took some of your clothes, made for yourself high places of various colors, and played the harlot on them, which should never come about nor happen. You also took your beautiful jewels made of my gold and my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself male images that you might play the harlot with them. So you see this harlot imagery of uh, gold and silver and jewels and these embroidered cloths and all these things given to us in Ezekiel as he pronounces judgment upon Jerusalem because of their uh, their harlotries. Uh, this is exactly what John sees here. The woman has profaned herself. She is also, besides her dress, she's holding a golden cup filled with the abominations of her sexual immorality. Uh, and this is the cause of her judgments. This is why those seven bold judgments have been poured out. And remember that we've already been told that she has corrupted the people of the land with her sexual immoralities, which means her idolatrous breaking of the covenant. This is the same thing that we've seen before. In Zechariah 12, 2, uh, God says, Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around, and when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. Even the cup that she's holding harkens back to the cup that the high priest used for the libation offerings on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, he would get in this uh, dress, this 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 gold and silver, purple and scarlet, with jewels adorning all over. He would take uh, he would take the the blood offering in, and he would take the libation offering in. Uh, everything about this harlot's description is a reference to the priestly aristocracy of Israel. And it's no wonder that the angel tells John that he's going to explain the judgment that he's just witnessed in the seven bowls uh, of chapter 16, which was the destruction of the temple in the city of Jerusalem uh, in, in by the Romans in 70 AD. Um, just a little hint of what's coming in the very last verse. We're going to be told uh, that the, the harlot is a great city. And so that is uh, re- we're we're going to keep that in mind as we're as we're moving forward. But in verse five, let's keep moving in Revelation 17. In verse five, we're going to continue with the appearance of the harlot. And once again, we're going to see a throwback to the dress of the high priests of Israel. In verse five, it says, and on her forehead was written a name, a name of mystery, Babylon, the great 
mother of prostitutes, mother of harlots, and of the earth, the land's abomination. Uh, this is a name on her forehead. Now, we've seen uh, this before with the worshipers of the beast and those who follow the lamb. Each of them has a name on their forehead. Uh, but the name on the harlot's forehead alludes back to the dress of the Aaronic priest, the high priest that we've seen before. When Moses was told by God, and I've mentioned this before as we talked about names on the foreheads before, uh, when Moses was told by God to put the garments of the priest together, when they were commanded to do, to do that, he was commanded to make a turban for the head of the priest. And on the front of that turban, it's called a mitre in the King James Version, uh, on the front of that turban uh, to be worn on the forehead of the priest was a plate uh, with the words, holy to the Lord, written upon it. So that plate on their forehead was written, holy to the Lord. It's Exodus 28, verse 36 through uh, 38. It says, you shall also make a plate of pure gold. And shall engrave on it like the engravings of a seal, holy to the Lord. You shall fasten it on a blue cord, and it shall be on the turban. It shall be at the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall take away the iniquity of the holy things, which the sons of Israel consecrate with regard to all their holy gifts. And it shall always be on his forehead, that they may be accepted before the Lord. Do you see the the significance? What? you're seeing here is a woman a harlot which number one was the uh was almost exclusively used of old testament israel of israel in the old testament number two you're seeing her in the full high priestly dress that was commanded uh to be made and worn by the high priest as he goes into the temple to intercede for the people you're seeing her also with the the turban on her head and the plate on her forehead that's supposed to say holy to the lord yet hers says the mother of harlots the one who has uh, defiled the land with abomination. Instead of holy to the Lord, this harlot who's supposed to be is supposed to be God's representative has forsaken her duty, rejected the covenant Messiah, and is now considered a harlot, just like she was over and over again in the Old Testament. No longer is she holy to the Lord. Now she is Babylon, the mother of harlots, and she has corrupted the land. She has corrupted the city with... Uh, corrupted the people with her abominations. The same accusation, the very same accusation that is given here in Revelation um, is given also of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Let me read that for you. It says, God says, this is Jeremiah speaking, Jeremiah chapter 3, God says, if a husband divorces his wife and she goes from him and belongs to another man, will he still return to her? Will not that land be completely polluted? But you are a harlot with many lovers, yet you turn to me, declares the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see where have you not been violated by the roads you have set uh, for them like an Arab in the desert, and you have polluted a land with your harlotry you see it polluted the land with your harlotry and with your wickedness. That's what it says here in Revelation. Therefore, the showers have been withheld and there has been no spring rain. You Yet you had a harlot's forehead. You had a harlot's forehead and refused to be ashamed. That's what Jeremiah chapter 3 says. So you see the imagery. A harlot's forehead is seen as speaking of the harlot Israel in 
Jeremiah chapter 3, this harlot who uh, rejected the Lord God, she has polluted the land. You see that in Jeremiah chapter 3, and this is exactly what we see in Revelation. Uh, her name is now Babylon, and, and this isn't too far of a stretch because we've already seen in Revelation chapter 11 that Jerusalem, the city where the Lord was crucified, is called Sodom and Egypt. Uh, we'll also see that Babylon is called the great city in the Old Testament, and in Revelation 11, the great city is called is the city where the Lord was crucified. So it doesn't take a great leap of logic to see uh, what John's saying here. Apostate Jerusalem has forsaken the covenant by rejecting the promised Messiah and has aligned themselves with the beast instead of their instead of their true king. They have. Um, They've corrupted the people of the land, caused them to go, the people of the land or the people of, of Judaism, they caused uh, them to go into idolatry. She is the mother of harlots, and she is propagating that harlotry uh, among all who who they who she influences. Uh, she is now the epitome of rebellion against a holy God. She is the mother of of harlots, and there, there's one final piece of evidence that Jerusalem is the harlot. Uh, before we're given the identity of the beast, before fo- uh, focus is shifted on the beast, in verse six of Revelation 17, it says, "And I saw the woman, this woman, this harlot who is in this dress, uh, this high priestly dress, who has this uh, supposed to be holy to the Lord name on her forehead, which now uh, claims she is Babylon, the mother of harlots." It says in verse six, "And I saw this woman drunk with the blood of the saints." The blood of the martyrs of Jesus. There's an and in there. And the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. The woman, this woman, this harlot, is drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the Jesus followers. Now, notice that the saints are the, the, the Old Testament saints here, the Old Testament believers. And uh, it, it distinguishes between the saints and the, and the martyrs of, of Jesus. So he's talking about both groups. He's talking about um, the saints of the Old Testament. He's talking about the believers in Christ. Now they make up one people of God. Uh, but there's a distinction here. If uh, if we're just talking about the people who trust in Jesus, there'd be no need to say the saints and the followers of Jesus. They would just all be followers of Jesus. Uh, well, what group is act is accused repeatedly in Scripture? of killing the prophets and persecuting the believers. The answer should be obvious. It's, it's Judaism. It's Jerusalem in particular. Uh, this correlation comes directly from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. Matthew chapter 23, verse 34 through 37. It says, Therefore, behold, I am sending, he's talking to Jerusalem, behold, I'm sending to you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. He's talking about the people that Jesus will send. So that upon you, he's talking to the city, may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. And then Jesus says, truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation, Jerusalem Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. So, to be honest, I'm pretty confident. I'm pretty confident in my interpretation of the harlot. Uh, the evidence is, uh, in my view, it's it's overwhelming that she represents Jerusalem and the apostate Judaic system that has rejected Christ and persecuted uh, God's people down through the centuries. Uh, 
so uh, she's got the high priestly dress. She's got the the nameplate on her forehead, which is now corrupted. She has uh, she has the blood of the 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 saints of God on her account, which is exactly what Jesus said Jerusalem would have in this generation, the generation that Jesus was speaking. Um, so the with the with the identity of the harlot, pretty much pretty much nailed down let's turn our attention to the beast and john is going to uh the angel speaking to john's going to identify him now we've already looked at some of these verses before when we were first introduced to the beast uh earlier in in revelation uh but we should we're going to see them again here so we can refresh our memories of exactly what john's talking about uh if you remember chapter 12 you'll note the image of the beast is drawn from the composite images of uh, of the beasts in Daniel. Remember we went and we talked about those four beasts in Daniel and we showed the seven heads and the ten horns from that from that text in Daniel. But here the angel explains exactly what the image of the beast means. Remember the angel is offering explanation as to why this judgment upon the harlot has taken place. And the so far we've seen it's because of her harlotry and now we're going to see the confederacy that she made with the beast. The the uh the, the one with whom she has committed fornication rather than serving God. In the, the latter part of six chap, verse 6 in chapter 17, it says, When I saw her, he's, he's talking about the woman, when John saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. And so he's going to explain this. In verse 8, he says, The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on the land, on the it says on the land, gay, the earth, uh, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel. To see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Now, before he gets into intricate details of the beast, he says, I'm going to explain to you. I'm going to tell you the mystery of the woman. I'm going to tell you the mystery of the woman. And I'm going to tell you the mystery of the, the beast which she rides. Do you notice? Did you see in verse 8 how he explained the woman? The dwellers on the land whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, they marveled at the beast. That is the definition of the woman that we have been talking about. The land dwellers are the people of Israel. Uh, I, I've said this over and over again, and I, I may forget to do it each time. You know, there may be new people joining us, but the land, land with a definite article, the land uh, is always used as the promised land in the Old Testament, the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. Whenever he talks about the land, he's talking about the promised land. And so we have been making case throughout Revelation. And I believe it's an ironclad case that uh, land, uh, earth here, whenever it says earth, gay is the word in uh, in Greek, it should be translated land. So he's saying, look, the harlot is, he's going to later tell us it's the city, but the harlot is the people dwelling on the land whose names have not been written in the book of life. They have rejected their Messiah. Uh, uh, he, he is going to use uh, strange language uh, to describe the beast. Before we get into the descriptions of the beast, look at the language that he uses in verse 8. The beast is 
what you saw is he, he was and is not and is about to rise. At the end of that verse, it says uh, they marveled because the beast was and is not and, and is to come. Uh, if you've been reading through Revelation with us so far, you probably recognize this language. It's the same language that's used of Jesus in several different places. Uh, the language is used of, of Christ in Revelation 1.4, Revelation 1.8, and Revelation 4.8. Um, it's, uh, remember, he is the one who is, who was, and who, who is to come. And, of course, we're going to see that the beast is Rome. We already know that, and it's going to be explained to us here. And and here he's presented as a parody of the Lamb. Remember remember the context that we've talked about through the letters of Revelation and, and even beyond as the, the visions have been going. Uh, the, the point of Rome, uh, the Caesars of Rome wanted to be worshiped they wanted to be they wanted to be worshiped as god and they wanted their um they wanted their worship the worship of their image uh to be done by all people in throughout the empire and it was punishable by torture or or death if it was not uh, if it was not accomplished there's a wonderful work uh, um in the uh uh and the Apostolic Fathers, if you read those, it's called the Martyrdom of Polycarp. And Polycarp, Polycarp was a bishop of Smyrna, and it's a famous story of, of his martyrdom. And the whole point of uh, his martyrdom, when, when they, ended, they ended up burning him um, at the stake, uh, and there's some mystical things that go on with that that may or may not be true, but the, the, the martyrdom, the book, The Martyrdom of Polycarp, is really interesting to read. Uh, they, the, the governor, the, the Roman magistrate, he simply was telling Polycarp, look, all you have to do, all you have to do is proclaim, proclaim Caesar is Lord. All you have to do is offer incense to the image of Caesar and we'll let you go. And Polycarp refused to do that. He says, uh, 80 and six years I've served my Lord and he's never done anything bad to me. How can I deny him now? And he ended up being burned at the stake. But that's what the Caesars were doing. They, The lamb is the true Lord. The lamb is the true king. But here the beast is presented as a parody of the lamb. He's, try, he's using the same language that has been used of Christ. The beast presents himself as the true Lord and Savior, beginning with Augustus Caesar. Uh, the emperors were often called, Augustus was called the son of God because he was, you know, uh, uh, Julius Caesar had been deified after his death. And so Augustus was his son. We call him the son of God. Nero w- wanted to be called Savior and Lord, uh, even down through Domitian. All these were going on. The Caesars demanded to be venerated in worship. And we have saw that before. And uh, the people were ordered to do that. But uh, the you see that he's presented in the same language, the same language. Uh, there's also a historical correlation to he was and he is and he is a. Uh, is to come uh the roman beast seemed uh seemed uh to be dying as we've looked at this before so this is just review the roman beast seemed to be dying as nero died nero committed suicide and then civil war raged uh among the the empire we've seen several historians uh, saying that it, it looked as if the roman empire was about to collapse it was in such uh, death throes but it was resurrected in a sense remember nero committed suicide in 68 um, and then between 68 69 AD there was and uh, while all this was going on the Jewish war was taking place um 
but between in that one year there were there were three there were three emperors that came to power um there was galba uh, otho and uh, vitellius I, i'm doing off the top of my head i believe those are the names uh th- those three came to power and one after the other they were they were assassinated uh when galba came to power uh he did not consolidate the empire there were people that were seditious rebelling against him saying no he's not the true emperor he ended up being assassinated then another one came and then he ended up being assassinated and it just looked like the empire was never going to stabilize it was dead it was dying uh one of the heads of the beast had been killed which is which is nero we're going to see that in a moment he killed himself and the whole beast looked like it was about to die but then of course it was for lack of a better way to better way to put it it was resurrected as vespasian the general who was actually commanding the armies in Judea that were attacking Jerusalem went back to Rome and took over the throne. He became the first emperor of the Flavian dynasty of emperors and for the next for the next 10 years uh, he ruled as emperor and and the whole thing settled down. The civil wars ended and all that we saw all this in Revelation chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. You remember it says, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed. The whole land was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war on him? That's the same thing that we're seeing here. The people marveled. People of the land marveled at the beast. He's seeing John. John is seeing the harlot riding the Roman beast. Uh, they have aligned themselves with the Roman beast, and this is the uh, this is part and parcel of their idolatry, their sexual immorality, uh, which is now deeming them as a harlot, uh, which God now is punishing. And, of course, the people of the land, the Jews, and especially the Jewish aristocracy, marveled at the beast. Uh, the ones who are not written in the book of life means those, of course, that's not a stretch, rejected Jesus, rejected the Messiah. They marveled at the strength and the power of the Roman beast, thinking that Rome was invincible. Uh, now, the first question that pops into my mind, is probably popping into yours, is, I thought you said that the Jews were at odds with Rome, and they ended up being destroyed by them, and they were attacking the city and all that. That is true. And we're going to see that at the end of this chapter. It's going to say the beast turned on the harlot and and stripped her naked and destroyed her. Uh, But remember here in chapter 17, we are being given an explanation of the entirety of the events that led up to the destruction. Not only the judgment, but why they're being judged. There's no doubt that the Jews aligned themselves with Rome because they thought it was the only way they could preserve their position and power. It was the only way to preserve the nation. Uh, They didn't trust the true king that was sent to save them. Instead, they trusted in uh, the godless Roman Empire, just like they trusted in Egypt in the Old Testament to help them against Assyria, uh, and, and God uh, punished them for that. But as we progress, uh, we're going to see at the end of this chapter that he's going the beast uh, that is they trust in the beast they've aligned themselves. The beast that the harlot's riding is going to turn on her and destroy her, and that's what came to fruition when Rome came and finally destroyed Jerusalem and and the temple. So, who is the beast? Uh, we've seen this before, but it's worth going through again just in case you uh, you uh, have some doubts about the correlations that we're making. Verse nine, he tells us right up. Front, you're going to have to interpret my symbolism. He says, This calls for a mind with wisdom. He says, The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. He's explaining the beast to us now. He said, Once again, he said, The seven heads. 
and our seven mountains. Once again, John uh, tells us, pay, pay attention, you know, have some wisdom as we read this explanation. Uh, the seven heads represent seven mountains on which the woman sits. Uh, there can be no doubt in the ancient world or even today that this is speaking of Rome. Uh, even even futurists will say this is going to be a revived Roman Empire because universally throughout history, the city that sits on seven hills was known as Rome. It sat on seven famous hills, Aventine, uh, Caelian, Capitoline, Esquiline, Palatine, Quirinal, and Viminial. Uh, but John doesn't stop there. He, he also tells us that these seven heads also represent seven kings. In verse 10, it says they are also seven kings. And he says five have fallen. Fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. So the seven heads of this beast are seven mountains. We saw that Rome sit, sit, city on, a, on seven hills. But these seven heads are also seven kings. Five of them are dead. Five have fallen. One is right now, as John is writing, and one is not yet come. At the time of John's writing, uh, remember, we made the case very early on in our study of Revelation that Revelation, as well as all the books of the New Testament, was written before A.D. 70. And there's excellent evidence for that. The reason that most people quote the 96 date, 98 date of the writing of Revelation is they're all going back to the all going back to the same source, uh, a, uh, uh, a confusing quote from Irenaeus. Uh, but we've already talked about that. We're not going to get into that at the time of John's writing, five kings have fallen. Julius Caesar was Caesar from 49 to 44 BC, fallen. Uh, Augustus Caesar was from Caesar from 31 BC to 14 AD. He died. Tiberius Caesar, 14 to 37 AD, and he died. Gaius Caligula, 37 to 41 AD, he died. And Claudius was uh, Caesar from 41 to 54 AD. He died. The five have fallen. Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, Gaius Caligula, and Claudius. Those five have gone. The one that was Caesar when John wrote was Nero. He was Caesar from 54 to 68 A.D. And that's right in our time frame. And it says one was yet to come, and he's only going to remain a short time. Of course, after Nero killed, committed suicide, the next emperor was Galba, and he reigned a total of six months. And he remained a short time, and then he was assassinated. And after Galba, there were two more emperors who took the throne that were killed in a matter of months, Otho and Vitellius. Uh, finally, we said before, Vespasian ruled from 69 to 79. He returned to Rome from Judea, took the throne, and restored uh, order and stability. But here is something that's very interesting in verse 11 of Revelation. It says, as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. Now, this is uh, it's hard to interpret and there's some some differing views on this. So I'll go ahead and grant that this is <clears throat> this is what I this is what I think from a historical perspective. Uh, technically, Galba was the eighth emperor. Uh, but he re really never had a firm grasp on the empire. Uh, there were civil wars, revolts, uh, you know, he's assassinated. Then the next guy come up and civil war revolt, he's assassinated. It was under Vespasian that Rome returned to stable, powerful empire. So who is this eighth king? Here is a point of grammar that you're going to, you're going to, I, it's very important that you understand. Uh, and it may be a little confusing, so you may want to listen to this a few times. Uh, go and get the outline and, and read through how it's written there. Maybe it'll be a little more clear. 
Um, it doesn't trans well, translate well into English, but you may have noticed that the definite article, definite article is the. When I say uh, the apple, uh, I am talking about a particular apple, the apple. When I say a apple, it's a, a is an ind- indefinite article. Uh, I could be talking about whatever kind of apple. You know, I want a apple, but if I say I want the apple, I'm talking about a particular apple. Well, that definite article, the, was used in this verse over and over again as John spoke of the seven. The seven kings. Then he spoke of the one, the one who uh, the five have fallen. He he spoke of the one who is, and then there is the one who is to come. But when he talks about this eighth, the definite article disappears, and he says it's an eighth. Did you notice that in your translation, in your English translation? It's not the eighth. It's an eighth. And that eighth belongs to the seven. It is of, literally, it is of the seven. Now, this is a quote from Dr. Kenneth Gentry in his book, The Beast of Revelation. It's on page 76 of his book. It says, the definite article that clearly and repetitively defined the chronological series of heads and kings, you know, the five, the one, the one is to come, it vanishes before an eighth is mentioned. What that means is, he says, it refers not to any one particular individual, but to the revival of the empire itself under one who is outside of the original specified seven kings, but it is of those seven kings. Now, now, that may be a little confusing, but what he's saying is because the article is absent, he's not talking about the chronological eighth in line king, the Galba, which would be Galba that technically was the eighth emperor. He is talking about an eighth who is of the seven. He is an emperor like those of the seven. And Vespasian is uh, as a king of those seven. He united the empire, brought it back to power, and he ruled it. And he ruled it and reigned over it. Uh, you need to notice that the text says that this eighth is of the seven. If your translation says that he is one of the seven, there are a few that say that. I think that uh, uh, the NASB may say that. I'm not. I'm not sure. I don't have it in front of me. But if you're there, there are some translations that say he is one of the seven. The word "one" has been added by the translators uh, for clarity, uh, and, and that happens all the time. That doesn't mean that your translation is a bad translation or anything like that. Uh, that's just when you translate one language into another, uh, there has to be there has to be some uh interpretive mo- model to uh to make it understandable in the language the receptor language uh, so this king is not necessarily the eighth in succession but he is an eighth that is the same type of king as the seven galba was technically the eighth emperor although his his reign was questioned throughout the empire you know civil war everywhere uh, and the next two emperors were also technically emperors of the Roman Empire, but, you know, half the empire didn't uh, observe their rulership and there were civil wars and just all this, all this turmoil, all this chaos going on. And there were people uh, all over the empire who denied that they were the emperor and no, he's not the emperor. Our general's an emperor. And there were people fighting for the throne, all this. And then finally Vespasian comes, takes the throne and he puts a stop to all this. He is the eighth. He is an eighth that is 
like the seven, the same type of a seven. He ruled over the entire empire uh, with, a, with with an iron hand. He was not he was not uh, one of the seven in the sense that he uh, he um, uh, was you know the next in line or the son of them or the same family or whatever or whatever. But he he was of the seven in that he brought order and power back to the empire. Vespasian did that. He was technically not the eighth king but he was an eighth does that make sense i hope it makes sense now john's going to explain the ten horns uh, verse 12 says and the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast and this is not hard to understand they are the sub monarchs under the roman empire they received their power from the beast but it was only for a short time nobody that i know of takes this one hour as literal time i mean they received power for an hour between one o'clock and two o'clock they had power and then it was gone no it's it, it means it's a short time and we've already seen that rome placed Rome ruled the empire by placing local provincial quote unquote kings in place uh, to keep order in their provinces L- local people that uh, were well known in the the communities that they wanted to rule king herod is a perfect example uh, from herod the great to herod antipas uh, all the way through those herods their power was given to them by rome herod actually traveled to rome and received his kingdom uh, from one of the caesars and so you see that throughout uh, all the provinces of uh, of the empire, and we saw that when they the kings of the uh, of the earth gathered against uh, the city uh, at Megiddo. It's uh, we we talked about the auxiliaries, the the armies that were part of the they weren't technically Romans, but they were part of the Roman Empire because they were ruled by Rome, and they were uh, f- armies from from all over different sections of the empire that had came to uh to join with the roman army to attack jerusalem we saw that the the 10 heads are are kings uh and then verse 13 says these are of one mind he's talking about the kings still the provincial kings these are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast they give allegiance to the beast is what it's saying uh, their purpose is to align themselves with rome to destroy jerusalem as the judgment of god comes to fruition we're going to see that at the end of this chapter they're going to give their resources and power to the beast in order to destroy jerusalem uh, we saw this before even in the last chapter where remember the frogs the demonic spirits that brought the kings to destroy they came to destroy the city jo- uh, josephus and and uh, historians that write about the jewish war talk about people from all kinds of nations that brought auxiliaries rome called up auxiliaries from all the surrounding area to join their army in the, in attacking jerusalem so it could rightly be said that the whole world came against Jerusalem in that day when the Romans destroyed them. And verse 14 says, they, he's talking about these kings still, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And those with him are called chosen and faithful. Now remember this, the Roman army, the Roman beast, so to speak, which includes all these provincial kings and all, all these things, they didn't just come against Jerusalem. Before this uh, before this uh, attack took place, remember what was going on. Remember what was going on in Acts. The Jews were continually turning Christians over, trying to get them persecuted by Rome, trying to get them, you know, Paul was taken before Roman magistrates 
magistrates uh, by by Jewish accusation a couple of times. Once in Corinth, once in uh, once in Ephesus, uh, a couple of times that has happened, and we've seen that throughout uh, historical writings as well. Um, they didn't just Rome didn't just uh, persecute. Uh, Jerusalem, as we're going to see, they also persecuted the people of the land, the beast and and his underrulers. They also went after Christians before his death in sixty eight. Uh, Nero became, my goodness, probably the greatest. Uh, of the Roman persecutors of the Christians. It, probably not as widespread as persecutions that happened later on, but definitely the most horrendous. I mean, the guy was a nutball. Uh, he he burned them alive in his garden. He he fed them to beasts. He cut them apart. He, he uh, did all kinds of just insane things. Uh, and so he became this uh, persecutor of Christians. And um, when the fire of Rome tore through almost the entire city, Nero placed the blame on the Christians. And, and that sparked the persecution that began this, uh, this Roman persecution of Christians. So uh, even after the destruction of Jerusalem, the persecutions of Christians by the Roman empire, it continued until 313. That was the peace of the, the peace of the church. When uh, Constantine uh, uh, fought the battle at the Milvian bridge um and he uh, he you know made christianity a, a legal religion there were persecutions popping up and sprouting up over here going back down and uh, just all over the roman empire for for 300 years and so it's no wonder it says that they will make war on the lamb but what's going to happen the lamb is going to conquer them for he is lord of lord king of kings and those with him those with the lamb are called chosen and faithful. The beast is ultimately going to be defeated by the lamb. I hope I don't have to explain that to you. Uh, the lamb is the true sovereign, the true power. He's king of kings, lord of lords. Regardless of what the empire, emperor or his followers believe, uh, the lamb's people, this is important now in the end of verse 14, the lamb's people are the true people. The people of the lamb are the true covenant people. They are the chosen they are the faithful. Remember what God said to Ju the to uh, to the Jewish nation back in the Old Testament. He said, "You among all people have a chosen, have I known among all people." Well, here it says the fulfillment of that are the people of the Lamb. Those who follow the Messiah are the called. Those are the chosen. Those are the ones who have been faithful to the covenant. Remember, this chapter is talking to us about a harlot who is unfaithful to her covenant partner. It is the followers of the Lamb who have been faithful who are faithful to the covenant that it, that has been made. Uh, the idea of faithful here is, of course, faithful to the, the covenant. Uh, Jesus fulfilled the covenant promises, and those who are faithful to him are faithful to the promises. Those, those who are of the faith are of Abraham, just like Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. Uh, next, we finally have the interpretation of the waters. Remember at the very beginning we said the, the harlot who sits on many waters. Uh, finally have the interpretation of the waters. Verse 15 says, And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw, where the prostitute is seated, where the harlot is seated, are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. The waters on which the harlot sits are shown as many people and nations. Uh, and what this speaking of this harlot is that the Jews influence in all corners of the empire 
was massive. Not this is why she's the mother of all harlots. This is not just hey this this one little group over here in the corner. These guys are not doing right, so we're gonna wipe them out. The Jews' influence, the influence of Jerusalem as the city of God, as the temple of God, was massive throughout the empire. It's called the Jewish diaspora, is what it's called. There were Jews everywhere in almost every city you could imagine. There was a. a a community of Jewish people, a, a synagogue or, or a, a, a meeting of the of Jewish people in that community. Uh, there's a, a, a Jewish man named Philo uh, who lived in Alexandria. He's one, we have a lot of his writings uh, about the about the same time period that we're talking about here. He says in uh, in one of his writings, he says it's uh, on the embassy to Gaius. That's the name of this writing, his follow of Alexandria. He says, concerning the holy city, I must now say what is necessary. It, as I have already stated, is my native country and the metropolis, not only of the one country of Judea, but also of many by reason of the colonies, which it has sent out from time to time into the bordering districts of Egypt, Phoenicia, Syria in general, and especially that part uh, of it, which is called Coel Syria, and also with those more distant regions of Pamphylia, Cilicia, the greater part of Asia Minor, as far as Bithynia, uh, and the furthermost corners of Pontus, and in the same manner into Europe, into Thessaly, into Boeotia, Macedonia, Aetolia, Attica, Argus, and Corinth, and all the most fertile and wealthiest districts of the Peloponnesus, which is the island, uh, the Greece, and uh, not excuse me and not only are the the continents full of jewish colonies but also all the most celebrated islands are so too such as euboea cyprus and crete i say nothing of the countries beyond the euphrates for all of them except a very small portion and babylon and all the satrapies around which have any advantages whatever of soil or climate have jews settled in them So that if my native land is, and it reasonably may be, looked upon as entitled to share in your favor, it is not one city only that would then be benefited from you, but 10,000 of them in every region of the habitable world in Europe, Asia, and in Africa, on the continent, in the islands, on the coasts, and in the inland parts. And it corresponds well to the greatness of your good fortune that by conferring benefits on the one city, which is Jerusalem, you shall also benefit 10,000 others so that your renown may be celebrated in every part of the habitable world and many praises of you may be combined with thanksgiving. He's speaking to Gaius. Entreating him to be good to Jerusalem, which in turn would be would mean that all these 10,000 colonies would also praise him. And so even from Philo of Alexandria, we see the influence that Jerusalem had over all of these cities, over all of these people. Uh, J. Stuart Russell comments, he says, the authority exercised by the Jewish race in all parts of the Roman Empire previous to the destruction of Jerusalem was immense. Their synagogues were to be found in every city. Their colonies took root in every land. And you can even see it in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2 when we see the Pentecost. Who was it that was visiting Jerusalem that were there for the feast? It says, and when you know the, the they go to speaking, the tongues of fire and the, the, the disciples go to speaking in these languages, it 
It says, and how is it that we each hear them in our own language? That's which were born Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and on and on and on. That's Acts chapter two. All of these were Jewish people of the diaspora from all these countries that had come into Jerusalem for the feast. <clears throat> Even Jesus uh, quoted on the uh, the the way that uh, the Jews went to make converts in Matthew twenty three fifteen. He says, "Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice the son of hell that you are." And so we see this throughout. They had immense influence throughout the uh, throughout the empire, and it says. It says, and the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. Here's where we see this judgment. He finally gets, he's come through all this, the angels come through all this explanation. He finally gets to why these judgments are being poured out or how these judgments are being poured out. This is very important. So if you've tuned out in all those quotes, come back, come back with me for just a second. It says, and the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Uh, this is the beast, the Roman, the Roman magistrate and all the kings confederate with her turning on the harlot and coming to destroy her. They'll come against the city of Jerusalem to destroy her and make her desolate. Incidentally, this is a, this is a fulfillment of many texts in the Bible. Daniel chapter nine, verse 26 and 27, uh, prophecy is told then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. That's Jesus being crucified, have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And this destruction is also a reference to Ezekiel's proclamation of Jerusalem's destruction in Ezekiel 16. It says, thus saith the Lord God, because your lewdness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered through your harlotries with your lovers and with all your detestable idols. And because of the blood of your sons, which you gave to idols, therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, even all those whom you loved and all those whom you hated. So I will gather them against you from every direction and expose your nakedness to them that they may see your nakedness thus i will judge you like like women who commit adultery or shed blood are judged and i will bring on you the blood of wrath and jealousy i will also give you into the hands of your lovers and they will tear down your shrines demolish your high places strip you of your clothing take away your jewels and will leave you naked and bare they will incite a crowd against you and they will stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords they will burn you with burn your house Houses with fire and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women. Then I will stop you from playing the harlot and you will also no longer pay your lovers. This is also a fulfillment, this destruction where the, the beast turns on the harlot and comes and destroys Jerusalem. It's also a uh, fulfillment of this, this woman being stripped naked and destroyed uh, of Matthew 22 in, in verses 2 through 7. When Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. And they were unwilling to come. And he sent out their slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my 
fatted livestock are all butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention, and they went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. And so Jesus is telling the parable, of course, of the the Jews who rejected the, the, the covenant. He sent out the wedding feast, and they refused to come. Now, we've talked about in, in verse 16, this is, we're, we're almost over, so stay with me. Uh, we've talked about in verse 17, in verse 16, it told us that it is the beast, the one with whom the harlot has aligned itself, that will turn on the harlot and come and bring destruction to the city, bring destruction to Jerusalem. But in 17, verse 17, look who is behind the scenes, behind all of this that's happening. It says, for God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast unto the words of God are fulfilled. God will give the harlot's kingdom to the beast. The harlot's kingdom will be given. Notice what it says. The kingdom itself, the kingdom of the harlot, not God's kingdom, but the harlot's kingdom will be given to the beast. It's the harlot's kingdom here, not God's. They have forfeited the kingdom of God, rejected Messiah, established their own, you know, uh, works-based religion, own rites and rituals and all those things to keep their prestige. And God turned them over. Notice that it's God himself who hands over the harlot's kingdom. Now, we've talked about the beast turning on them. We've talked about the Rome coming against Jerusalem. We've talked about all these things that have happened in, in history, uh, things that were prophesied in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We've talked about all those things, but understand the explanation. Remember, this chapter is an angel giving explanation to John of why the harlot is being judged. It is God who brings this judgment. Why the seven bowls of judgment which are poured out is because the harlot aligned herself with the beast rather than with her covenant husband, God. They rejected the Messiah and God caused the beast to turn upon this covenantly unfaithful people and destroy their city. It says God has put it into their hearts in verse 17. Uh, this was this this was accomplished. I mean, it was done by in the destruction of Jerusalem as Titus, which is Vespasian's son, who took over after Titus went back after Vespasian went back to Rome. Titus killed or he destroyed the city, killed or enslaved all the people in the city. Today, if you go, you could probably Google it online. Uh, if you go to Rome, you will still see what's called the Arch of Titus. It's a, a monument there to Titus, and it bears inscriptions of Titus' uh, his victory over Jerusalem. And it's got pictures, inscriptions, engravings of the people marching with the spoils of war. And you can see in that engraving, there's one, one place where a menorah, can can clearly be seen being pictured being carried out of the city being carried into Rome as Titus celebrated his victory in verse 18 finally in Revelation 17 last verse verse 18 says and the woman that you saw he says the harlot that you saw that we've been talking about is the great city that has dominion over the king's of the land, the kings of, uh, I would say the kings of the land is, is, is kings of the earth in the ESV and the NASB and in the King James as well. But I would say the kings of the land, uh, and I'm not alone in that. We've talked about that before. Uh, she is identified here for us. The great city 
this is a reference, of course, to what Babylon is called in the Old Testament. We've seen that before. And she herself is called Babylon. Is that thing on her forehead it says Babylon mystery uh babylon the great the uh mother of harlots um we've already seen the great city used of jerusalem uh it, just as it was called sodom in egypt um and it says uh oh, but but how how does she have dominion over the kings of the land of the kings of the earth uh we can look at this a, a few different ways josephus in wars 787 writes and where is now that great city talking about jerusalem the metropolis of the jewish nation which was fortified by so many walls round about which had so many fortresses fortresses and large towers to defend it which could hardly contain the instruments prepared for the war and which had so many ten thousands of men to fight for it where is the city that was believed to have god himself inhabiting therein it is now demolished to the very foundations and had nothing but the monument of it preserved i mean the camp of those that have destroyed it which still dwells upon the the ruins we've seen that destruction of that great city that he calls the metropolis of the jewish nation the city and the the pomp the the influence that it had over all the people the 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 rulers of the land the rulers that have the jewish diaspora uh, the kings of the land they they the city seduced them into corruption the religious system seduced them into corruption and greed saying we are the true people of god we have the religious worship of god this is the temple the temple of god come and be part of these sacrifices and rites and rituals that we've done for so many years when the bridegroom had already come when the bridegroom came all of the sacrifices all of the temple all of the priestly imagery was fulfilled and perfected as the promise of uh, the promises given to abraham isaac and jacob were fulfilled the messiah was the covenant fulfillment yet they rejected it and by doing so they became the center of idolatry this woman that you saw is that great city that great harlot that is pictured throughout the Old Testament that has committed fornication against uh, her covenant partner, God. And it is the people of the Lamb, if you remember in this chapter, that said they are the chosen. They are the faithful, meaning being faithful to the covenant. So what we see here, to sum up, in chapter 17, in chapter 17, is we see an explanation. We see an explanation of the judgments that we have been witnessing. Uh, the judgment in chapter 16, it says it is done. It's finished. And so chapter 17 comes. This angel comes to report to John what he has been seeing. He says, I'm going to explain to you the harlot. I'm going to explain to you the beast. And he gives the explanation of both the harlot that we've seen in the priestly dress, holding the cup of libation with the the, the turban, with the thing on her, on her forehead that's supposed to say holy to the Lord, but instead says mother of harlots. We've seen that imagery uh, clearly showing the harlot as uh, apostate Israel, apostate Jerusalem that rejected the Messiah. Uh, we have also seen the, the beast, the seven head, ten horns, can be no other than Rome itself. And then we've filtered down through all the interpretation of all those things. And so I'm, I'm pretty confident about my conclusions. But uh, what that, you know, I, I've been light on application throughout this te text because, you know, there are a lot of good applications that can be drawn. A lot of people have preached on Revelation from different view viewpoints that usually come to the same application. That's why I say that it's not really uh, something worth dividing over because whether you see this as coming in the future, whether you see it as I believe it is as the destruction of Jerusalem, 
The application for you is the same. We are to remain faithful to our covenant God. We are remain we are to remain faithful to our covenant head, which is Jesus Christ, who paid for the sins of of the world, who paid for our sins, who, whose names uh, he is written in in his book of life. And so, this destruction, this covenant judgment, uh, is. Uh, it's uh it's been poured out it's it's being poured out and we're going to move into chapter 18 next time we are quickly approaching the the moment when we're going to see uh, a shift where we're going to start talking about events that are coming uh, as uh, the return of christ looms near so i hope you can join us for that